Welcome. This is Kim Addis from Frame of Mind Coaching, and I am the host of Resilience Radio, where I interview guests who are professionals at crushing the tough stuff. Today, I'm so excited to introduce this guest. He's an executive from Uber. Can you imagine? We got an Uber guy to join us today. But he's not just any Uber guy. He's the head of global policy for accessibility and underserved communities. So his name is Malcolm Glenn. Malcolm, welcome. Thanks, Kim. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate you so, having me on. So Uber's a, you know, a transportation company. And I'm just curious to know how you identify those people who are underserved and how you serve them differently from anyone else. So share with me your role, what you do, and what your mandate is. It's a great question. I think it's in part right. I think Uber is a transportation company, but we're also a couple of other things. We're a, a company that gives people an opportunity to have work. We're a company that's involved in the delivery of eats, uh, food. We are uh, a sort of a transportation and logistics platform. Uh, we have a freight business for long haul trucking. Um, and so I think the question as to who is an underserved community really kind of depends on um, in what aspect we're thinking about it. So some folks are people who have been poorly served by something that we're trying to solve for. So people who have been poorly served by transportation historically, people who have been poorly served when it comes to getting access to reliable uh, and accessible work. Um, there are people who live in food deserts. Uh, there are people who, uh, for whom there have been either sort of physical or geographical or financial barriers to entry to some component of our platform at some part in our life. And uh, some of those people are a little bit easier to identify than others. I think, you know, when we're talking about people with disabilities, for example, it's fairly easy to pinpoint people who are wheelchair users and people who need expanded access as a result of using a wheelchair. But it's a little bit more difficult when you're talking about, say, a geographically underserved community? Are you talking about people who are far away from transit? Are you talking about people who live in rural areas? Or is the answer all of the above? I think for us, it's all of the above, which is to say that we are answering some of those questions better than we are others. But my job every day is to really grapple with them, to talk to people out in the world and try to come up with solutions that serves as many people as possible. So how long have you been with Uber? I've been with Uber for just over three years, and I've been in this role specifically for about the last five months. Wow. Okay. So five months. And tell me a little bit about the, like, give me an example of a strategy you may have been part of, or maybe happened before you got to this role, where you specifically targeted and addressed a problem for the underserved uh, community. Or yeah. the, yeah, or, 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 or the, yeah that that audience that needs a little bit extra? Yeah, it's a great question. And so in my old role, I did a lot of work that brought me in touch with issue groups and organizations and nonprofits that represent people from underserved communities. And so I did a lot of work, for example, with the disability community. And so one of the things that we heard for the entire time I've been here, and quite frankly, since long before I got to Uber was that you know, the nature of our platform doesn't necessarily serve everyone who uses a wheelchair, particularly someone who's an electric wheelchair user, meaning that they can't transfer from their chair into the seat in a car. 
Uh, most people who drive with Uber are using their own cars on their own time. And most people don't own wheelchair accessible vehicles and then right. also decide to drive with Uber. So we had to say, OK, what can we do outside of our traditional model to serve this population? And so over a long period of time, we negotiated and talked to tons of commercial providers of wheelchair accessible vehicles and said, hey, is there a way that we could get your vehicles on our platform and serve this population in places where people need it. And so through a ton of conversations and a whole host of negotiating around what that structure was going to look like, we now have a partnership with the largest provider of paratransit services across North America to provide wheelchair accessible vehicle services in eight of our largest North American markets, which together make up half of our business in the United States and Canada. And we're not just operating there. We have a pretty significant level of reliability in those places. So right now, in most of those places, folks can get a ride in a wheelchair accessible vehicle for in 15 minutes or less on average, which might not sound like a big deal in a vacuum. But when you think about the alternative, which is for most people, paratransit services, which requires booking 24 hours in advance, we think it's a meaningful uh, improvement. We know it's that we have, a lot, we know we have a lot more to do in that space, but we're excited about the progress we've made. And it's been over the course of a number of weeks and months that I've been at Uber trying to negotiate and get that deal in place. Congratulations. That's a big deal. And by the way, I am pretty exposed to the paratransit services and I know the delays that can happen. Uh, you know, even when you do book 24 hours in advance, a lot of people are still waiting way past their time of pickup, just hanging out waiting. And it's, uh, it's sad when you see someone just sitting there waiting for their for their ride to come by. I have a question for you, maybe it's not the most politically correct question. But this market, and you know, you, you just arrange something pretty spectacular. Is it a lucrative arrangement? Or is it something that Uber does because it's the right thing to do? Is there a balance there? There's a balance. Right now, we are investing fairly significantly in making sure that this service is reliable and sustainable. Um, but we also recognize that there is uh, a value imperative beyond just money to get this right. Mm-hmm. One, I think, comes from the fact that we have a new CEO in about the last 14 months who has really tried to instill at this company this notion of doing the right thing for doing the right thing's sake. So we have these cultural norms that we talk about internally. And I think the one that basically everyone at this company could recount to you is do the right thing, period. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is this recognition that we have an opportunity to transform an outcome for a community that has been very poorly served in a transportation space for a long time. There's a recognition that in the long term, we have a, a diverse and a unique business that can have profitability in some parts of it. And we can use those funds to ultimately Uh, serve parts of the company that may take a little bit longer to get to that point. Um, But I think ultimately, the question that we're trying to ask ourselves, and it is certainly trying to become a norm that everyone in the company subscribes to is, are we doing the right thing? Now, I think we are further along in that process than we were, say, two years ago. We are not where I think everyone at this company wants to be, and certainly where leadership wants to be, as well as where I want to be. And so my job is to try to push us more towards that notion. Mm -hmm. 
So before you were with Uber, you were with Google. And before that, you were with the American Federation for Children, always working towards the same goal, always working in the same area with respect to serving the underserved communities or, or was, was it different? It's been mostly that. So in my first couple of jobs, I my first job out of college was working in political polling consulting for a firm serving progressive candidates and working on behalf of issues that are going to help people who tend to live on the margins. And then I went to work in education advocacy that was explicitly focused on helping folks from low income um, areas. And then I switched to Google and I really wanted to find a place that had the resources to make what I thought was the impact that could really be uh, sort of transformative for, for large groups of people. My job at Google was pretty different. I was working there on an executive communications team where I was leading all of the comms for one of our senior leaders communicating his vision and strategy both to the internal audience and the external audience. And it was there that I realized I really kind of want to get back to this notion of equity and serving people who traditionally have a little bit of a harder shot at some form of life. And so um, when I was making the transition away from Google, I really said, okay, let me find a place where I can, even if it's not the fundamental mission of the institution, let me find a place where I can at least work on issues related to equity and improving service and making outcomes better for marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So you've had a pretty formidable career. You're not that old. You're a pretty young guy. Uh, looking back, what was your personal greatest adversity? I think my my personal greatest adversity came very early in life. Uh, I lost my dad when I was five years old. Wow. And I think there was there were things that I didn't understand about that experience until I became an adult. And when you're young, I think you sort of go through the motions. You don't know anything differently. Um, and you make the best of what you can. I was fortunate enough to have an amazing mother. I continue to still have an amazing mother who has supported me at every step of that way. But becoming an adult and really kind of grappling with the emotions and the grief um, and the uh, and the reality of what that means in a way that you're not able to when you're young is uh, is a remarkable process. And I think for me, it's been a very um, therapeutic process um, because now and, you know, into adulthood, I started to develop the tools to deal with this very um, uh, significantly impacting experience in my formative years. And so um, it happened early, but I would say that the the experience of really grappling with it has been a lifelong one, and I imagine will continue to be a lifelong one, long one for as long as I'm around. Share with our audience how that experience actually affected you or impact you. So think about when you were young, maybe in high school, maybe as you were growing up, what were the moments where you really felt that there was an absence or that you felt that, hey, like, you know, this event that happened in my life is playing out. It's showing up right now. I'm feeling it. It's it's affecting me. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, it affects you every day on a micro level, particularly, um, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath, even when you're young, you know, you feel it every day. The absence is, is there. But I think there are some ways that I didn't fully grapple with that absence until, um I moved into a different experience. And so I left home for college and I think it was living away from home 
living in a completely different um, environment, being away from my mother and the the experience that I'd known basically my entire life that really uh, intensified and articulated to me what that absence meant. And so I think I dealt with it in some of my experiences trying to form very full-throated relationships with people who were close to me. And I didn't realize this at first. I think uh, I was sort okay, of stumbling so hold on through a the second. process. Yes, go ahead. So I'm going to slow you down. What does a full-throated relationship mean? <laughs> I think I, if you'd have asked me after high school, I would have said I'm very um, well-liked, but you know, I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of close relationships and a lot of people who are close in my life. And I think I really, I think it was going away from school and really kind of grappling with this notion of closeness, which I think is related to the loss that I experienced relatively early in life that really made me kind of, uh, really start to interrogate what closeness meant. And so, you know, do I talk to these people a lot every day? Yes. Do they know lots of facts about me? Sure. Do we spend time together? Yes. But are we dealing with the things that are most important with, right. to us when they have an issue that is something they wouldn't necessarily want to share that makes them uncomfortable, that is that is scary? Will they come to me about that thing mm -hmm. and vice versa? And I realized as I was starting to deal with some of those things in my own right, I didn't feel like I had as big of a group, as mm -hmm. big of a, a, of a sort of network to help me through those processes, mm -hmm. even though I knew a lot of people and I could call up a lot of people and mm -hmm. I had lots of friends. I'm doing air quotes now. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I think, going away, being away from that environment that I knew my whole life that really made me grapple with it. And as I started to interrogate, you know, why is this happening? Why am I struggling with this? I think it started to make me go back to this very significant loss. And I think some of the fears that manifested themselves around that loss very early in my life. So I want to share something very interesting with you. That's also very timely. Uh, my mother passed away a few weeks ago on January 7th. Oh, I'm and, so sorry to hear that, Kim. Oh, don't be sorry. You know, so here, here's what I'm grappling with. And, and I think it's a little bit related to what you're talking about is that when somebody in your life dies, the public reacts a certain way. They say, I'm sorry. Sorry right. for your loss. My condolences. Right. And they immediately jump to a place where you must feel sad or bad or pain or struggle. And, and my experience, similar to yours, is that I felt like, oh, my God, I got such an outpouring, you know, on social media, but personally everywhere from lots of friends and, and, and acquaintances of people who shared their uh, sorrow, although I didn't feel sorrow. But what it did trigger within me is that a lot of these conversations were very surface level. So I think only one person in my life asked me, how was the funeral? Yeah. Right. And, and what I started to think about is like people are afraid to go to those deep, personal, intimate subjects. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, it's probably related to the fact that people are uncomfortable with death. But what you're telling me is that no, people are just uncomfortable getting really deep and personal. And so it leaves us feeling like a sense of isolation or aloneness. I think that's exactly right. I think people, all of us, have some inherent fear of vulnerability. And, you know, part of it is biological. I think it goes back to, you know, what was vulnerable, what, what made us vulnerable, you know, in, in the Stone Ages was, was a risk of death. And, you know, it meant that we weren't going to continue to perpetuate our species. And I think even though the world has changed, that instinctive 
uh, reaction to kind of be inherently fearful of vulnerability is something that has lasted with us. And the manifestations of it are what you just said. Yeah, I find it very, very fascinating. So as you went to university and as you said, yes, I have a whole bunch of friends and we do spend time together and they do know a whole bunch of things about me. I feel this feeling of disconnection. I'm speaking on your behalf here. Yes, that's Uh, right. How did you overcome that? How did you say, okay, I accept that? And or how did you start building connection? For me, it meant kind of going back to the experience and a lot, there was a lot I didn't remember. I was five years old, but I think going back to the people who were there for that experience. So in particular, my mother and my brother and some of my other extended family members. And then the thing that was really, really valuable for me um, was actually watching home videos. And so Mm -hmm. I went home during a break and I basically went through and my mom, God bless her, just took tons of home videos when we were young that she, I'm sure she never realized how valuable they would be to me at, a, at, a, at a, an important point, important point in my life. Um, but I realized I, I hadn't really dealt with the death. I hadn't really grieved. And so it was a sort of delayed grief where I needed to really sort of engage with him and engage with this event. And the way that I went about doing that was talking to people and having people write to me who knew him and were around during that experience and watching things, the limited number of things that I had myself. And it was just a a sort of cathartic emotional experience whereby I came out feeling like this was sad and this was something I would not have wished would have happened, but I have these really amazing stories and I have this really amazing set of experiences that people have recounted to me about who this person was. And it's not, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, fill the space of him being there, but it is so much more meaningful than me not dealing with those emotions Mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I want to emphasize something you just said is the term stories. So again, going back to my experience, I am craving for people to tell me stories of my mother when she was younger. She was very sick at the tail end of her life. So that memory is really, really sharp in my mind. And I want to go back to before before she was sick and there aren't I can't seem to find the stories so this concept of stories is very important and for those of you who are listening think about the stories in your own life the stories of your own parents the stories you hand down to your children uh, and the stories they will tell their own children and stories carry legacy really and uh, So important. So, so important. So very interesting. And what about the issue of connection? When you looked at the people in your life, did did you take an action to increase your connection with those people? I tried. And what I realized is that I had a unique opportunity to just ask them questions that they were not used to being asked. Mm. And so, you know, how are you feeling? No, truly, how are you feeling? Is there anything I can do to help you? You know, I, you're always, I'm always here to talk to you. And that was helpful in its own right. But then I think what really helped is me sharing myself made mm-hmm. people feel more comfortable sharing themselves. And so when I told them, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this thing related to my dad and I'm engaging with these videos and, and my mom is writing to me and it's really emotional and it's cathartic and you feel good and you feel bad at the same time. I think other people realized maybe not the same thing was going on with them. But they were dealing with something that made them scared or something that made them uh, uh, not want to be vulnerable. And it was me telling them I was there. 
but then me really showing them, hey, vulnerability is okay. It's not the end of the world. It actually is going to help you feel better Mm -hmm. that I then got people talking to me about those same things. And it's something I've tried to sort of continue and be consistent with throughout my life. Let's make sure that the folks we have in our lives are, are we're dealing with them at a really meaningful level. And that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for everyone, but just the, the openness and the understanding that for whatever it means for you, no matter how deep that is, you have someone who's there for you. Mm-hmm. But I think you're 100% right. The minute you are able to be vulnerable and open the door, people are willing to go to that place with you. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Let's look at your life right now. What do you think is your greatest challenge in today's world and in your current life? I think I am like a lot of other people of my generation and that I'm really, I'm, I'm desperate to sort of find the meaning in what I do. And there's sort of two ways I think about that. There's a sort of micro meaning, which is, you know, am I practically improving people's lives and what I'm doing. And I think the answer for the most part is yes. Um, But I really try to sort of, and I struggle with this question myself and I talk to others and they struggle with it as well. And and it's sort of this notion of sort of to what end, you know, what are we really trying to, to, to accomplish in the most macro scale? What am I, what, what is the, what is the mark I want to leave? Is it worthwhile? I have all this time and I'm, blessed with all of these resources and this these networks and access to so many different things. Am I utilizing it in the right way? Am I doing as much of the good as I can be doing? Um, I don't know how to fully answer those questions. And I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't get to the, as concrete an answer as I want, but I'm constantly sort of questioning and interrogating the things I'm doing to make sure that I'm spending my time in such a way that I'm most meaningfully impacting people in the way that I can. So can I give you a little bit of a, a coach's reflection on that for a brief moment? That That's why we're here, please. That's why we're here. So the way you phrased your question is very interesting. I want to know if I'm doing the right things. And the word doing is really the critical piece of that question. And I would urge you to say, to to look at it a little bit differently because what you do reflects what you believe. What you do reflects what you think. And so rather than asking yourself if you're doing the right things, ask yourself how you're thinking about what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. I think right? that's good advice. It's a totally different question because the way you think about everything will impact what you do. And so you're doing follows, right? It's kind of like a dog wags his tail because he's excited, not because the tail wags by itself, right? I know yeah. it's a weird analogy. but But in your case... What is it that, you know, what's the impact I want to make and how do I think about that? What, what beliefs do I have around that? How do I envision this? How do I imagine this? And is my thinking lined up with that vision? And then what should I be doing? First, I really like. you thinking? I yep. really like that. Start with thinking and then and then let the rest follow. A hundred percent. I think that a lot of highly driven individuals are very, very action oriented and they just move to action very quickly because that's in their nature. And sometimes what we want to do is take a step back and say, hey, is your action even aligned with your desire or your goal? Let's look at how you're thinking about this. Because a lot of times action lead to uh, outcomes that weren't desired in the first place. So yeah. I want to help people take a step backwards before taking a massive step forward. All right. Last question. You've got a coach on the line. Is there a question that you have for this particular coach? 
So the question, I, I guess I do have one. And I think the question is, is really related to what you just said. And I appreciate that advice. I think it's, it's so useful. Sometimes I find myself um, thinking about what I'm thinking about, you know, kind of distilling what is important to me and recognizing that I, 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 I know what I think and I know what I believe in. Um, and I sometimes feel a little bit paralyzed by the many things that I could then do to sort of operationalize those beliefs. And I think it comes from a, from a place of sort of fear of doing new things and uh, an inherent um, risk aversion in a lot of components of my life. And so, Kim, my question for you would be, and it's related to this, but it's, I think it's even a little bit broader. How do I overcome my own fears? I've done it in a couple of respects, but yeah. how do I do it, say, in my professional life? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that we do when we coach uh, highly driven entrepreneurs or senior executives is that we ask them to journal in an online journal and we ask them specific questions. The reason we do that is we are trying to understand what they believe to be true, how they see the world, their perspectives, because your beliefs fuel your action and lack of action. So when you say to me, you know, like I have all these ideas or these beliefs about what should happen in the world, but then I feel paralyzed. The, par the paralysis comes from a different set of beliefs. And that, right. those beliefs might look like I don't have time. I don't have the resources. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the ability. I don't know how to do this. I I'm making it up, right? It could, it could come from any number of places. Once you write them down, you can look at them objectively as just simply beliefs, ideas, thoughts, and you can start to challenge them one by one. So if I needed the resources, what would they be and where would I start looking? Right. And so what we're trying to do is allow you to look at your beliefs and address them, challenge them. I really understand. Yeah, understand that those beliefs don't need to be something that you hold on to for dear life and that you could actually train them in for something more useful. I love that. I love that. I think thinking about myself trying to be self-reflective, I recognize um, the the degree to which I hold on um, to beliefs, perhaps sometimes beyond their usefulness. So that's that's really, really good advice. And I'll, I'll give you another piece of, of advice that is completely self-serving. It's a lot easier to do that when you have a coach to help you through the process. But there you go. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's super interesting, especially when you start writing and then looking back at your journals to see what themes come up. Where you oh, keep bumping into the same problems over and over and over again. The patterns of behavior you uh, fall into and the traps that become habitual, right? So journaling is an incredible tool and one that I highly recommend for people who have big dreams, big goals that they want to achieve. I appreciate that. Malcolm, I so appreciate your time and your wisdom. I love spending this time with you and learning about you. And thank you for sharing, sharing all of that with our audience. Thank you, Kim. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope that one day our paths will cross again. I look forward to it.